Good morning. I was thrilled when Nate extended the invitation to me to return to Radiant. I've preached here once before, and I am unaccustomed to being invited back. And <laughs> but more seriously, I, I was really looking forward to communicate to you just up front here just some of the reasons why I love this 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 church. Um, I, I love this church first because of the Helmers. Um, and, and by the way, who doesn't love? Only Satan doesn't love the Helmers. <laughs> the rest of us love the Helmers. And I just treasure my friendship with Doug and the gospel witness that has come out of his tenure in pastoral ministry within this church. Also, I, I love this church because of the elders. Um, it wasn't all that long ago. I, I sat with them for an evening. I just observed the, uh, the wisdom, the unity, but, but this as well, how much they love you and how well they care for you. And then when, when I, I discovered Nate was going to be leading, oh my goodness, that was all the more exciting to me because of the quality of that man as well. So, so that's kind of that's kind of banging around in my mind is one of the reasons as well. And then finally, I love this church because it is the happy church of GCC's treasured team member, Amanda Carter, and, and her husband, Mike. Amanda has become essential to everything that takes place within Great Commission Collective, and I'm just so grateful to God that she calls Radiant her church home. So that's some of the things that are filling my heart right this second. Um, I was encouraged to provide you an update on, on Great Commission Collective, which I'm happy to do. If you're new here and wonder, what's this Great Commission Collective thing all about? Great Commission Collective's partners churches in order to plant churches and strengthen leaders. And I am very encouraged to report that, that we are in a fruitful season. I don't assume every season is going to be fruitful in some of the discernible ways that this one is. But I am encouraged that we are right now planting 14 churches and supporting another 15 churches. And that's just in North America alone. One of the things that we're doing that I think is really cool is that we are, we are working with international leaders to be able to plant churches in their countries and then helping them form those churches into networks that we can then serve. So six international networks have already been formed, and three of them will be formed, uh, three more will be formed just in the next few months in the UK and, and East Africa as, as well. So all of that is kind of going on on the church planting side. But then we have this strengthening leader side, and that means training, that means cohorts, that means coaching, that means working with pluralities, which just means that um, the, the, the quality of, of the elderships really determine the health and the trajectory of a church. And so what we've done in Great Commission Collective is recognize this can't just be about the lead pastor or the senior pastor. This has to be about the elders as well. So reaching beyond them so that we can serve the entire system that works to serve the church. So it just means defining success for leadership, not just in starting strong. We want our planters to start strong, but we also want them to finish well. We want to see leadership longevity. We want to see church resilience. And so that's why we exist. 
And honestly, we're, we're not a big group, and we don't regard ourselves as exceptionally talented, but we are trying to be faithful. And I am just so grateful to God that we get to try to be faithful in partnership with, with Radiant. So thank you. I've been invited to preach from Acts chapter 20, so you can open, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. While, while you're doing that, let me just start with a little bit of context. The, uh, the date is around A.D. 57. The ship carrying Paul has docked in Miletus, which is a town about 30 miles southwest of Ephesus. And as Paul arrives, he from there calls the Ephesian elders to come and join him. Now, Paul does this for a couple of reasons. First, Paul is an intensely relational man. <clears throat> for Paul, it's never merely fulfilling a job description. It's, he has these mates, these people he's lived with and, and worked with, and he wants to see them. He's close enough to be able to connect with them. So he says, come and be with me. But there's a second reason as well, and that is that Paul thinks he is going die. And you will discover as we drop into this passage that his tone appears grave, his subject most serious, because Paul's heart is fixed upon Jerusalem. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish the course, my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Let's pray. Lord, this is such <clears throat> a rich passage. And my prayer is that you would help me to exposit and explain in a way that that brings us all into your heart and your call and your claim from this passage. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I used to find hiking to be an excellent way to explore life's deeper questions with my kids. And such was the case a while back when my oldest son and I went for a hike up into the Pennsylvania countryside on top of a mountain to an area where you can just look out over the most picturesque part of Pennsylvania. And so we're sitting on this outcropping of rock, and while we're sitting there, there's a group of college students, four of them, that come up, and we engage them in conversation and say, hey, what are you doing here? And they say, well, actually, we're here to explore a cave that is down over the hill there. And they said, why don't you come along? And so as life found me that day, I'm following behind this group of people that I have never met to go to a place I have never gone to do something that I have never done. And next thing, we're crawling through this cave and it's getting deeper and into the mountain. And, and we come into this area where there's open chamber and it's lit up. And I look up to the ceiling, and there's a hole in the ceiling, and the sun is shining down in, through the hole. And almost as if it's the reason they came, the college students begin one by one climbing up the side of the cave wall and out through the, top of the, out through the hole at the top of the ceiling. And so my son is standing next to me, and the third one goes up and through, and the fourth one goes up through, and I can feel him just getting more and more excited as the last one goes up. And as the last one clears the hole, he immediately turns to me and says, Oh, Dad, please let me go up the side of the cave wall. I so want to go up the side of the cave wall. It would be so cool to go up the side of the cave wall. And I'm trying to explain to him, Son, your mom sent you and I out today, and if I come home without you, that's going to be very awkward for me. So let's skip the hole going up the side of the cave wall but then I, I see his disappointment, and I realize, hey, this is why we're here, to create memory. Son, go ahead. Go up. And so he just goes, and he scampers up the side of the cave wall. Now, I should have predicted what was going to happen next, almost as if the whole thing was choreographed. Five arms reach down through the hole in the top of the ceiling, and they're doing this. Come on up. Come on up the side of the cable. And I'm looking up and I'm saying, no, I'm not going to come up the side of the cable. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, there, there's something about having your second child. There's something about having a mortgage. There's something about having a bad back that makes you not want to go up the side of a cave wall. And so I'm saying, no, I don't think I'm going to. I Actually, what I'll do is I'll just kind of crawl back out of the cave and I'll come around and I'll get you and I'll pick you up and... And we'll walk down. And so I'm kind of crawling out of the cave, and I'm feeling, I'm feeling very old, okay? I, like I just want somebody to wrap me in a warm blanket and feed me prunes. Or <laughs> and I, and I, I, I pick up my son, and, and we're walking down the trail, and, and, and the air is just thick with disappointment, and I realize, again, we're here to build memories, and I just missed another moment. And so I stop, and I say, son, we're going back to the cave. I'm going to go into the cave, and I'm going to go up the side of the cave wall. And I knew it was the right decision when he said, yes, as if to say, my dad's not a wimp. <laughs> when 25 minutes later, I'm making my way up the side of the cave wall, and there's this one part where you have to push off the one, le push off the one wall to hit the other wall with your, leg, with your hand, and then push off one ledge that your foot is standing on, 
and hit the other ledge with your other foot. And I push off, hit the wall with my hand, push off with my one foot, and my other foot misses the ledge. And I begin sliding down the side of the cave wall. And so I just lock my body down, and I begin thinking, well, here I am. <laughs> I'm stuck. There's no going back. I can't stay where I am. The only place to go is to go forward, but going forward comes at great risk. I can't, I can't give up. I can't say, oh, hang it. I'm just going to fall. But, you know, the mind does funny things in that moment. I'm, I'm, I'm also thinking, you know, maybe I could just stay here. I understand, I understand caves. I can have the same climate all year round. No, that's not bad. I'll send my son home. He can get my wife. Bring the other children. We can live here. They can bring groceries. They can decorate me for Christmas because I'm like that the whole time. Be but I realize, no, there's no going back. I can't stay where I am. The only place to go is to go forward, yet going forward comes at great risk. Let me ask you a question. Do you, get your, do you get a sense that your life is unfolding with this same realization right now? There's no going back. You can't stay where you are. The only place to go is to go forward. But to go forward, you have to accept that there will be risks. To go forward, you have to accept that there will be a cost. Paul is in a similar position. Different reasons than I was, but similar position. I, I was confronting risk because I did not want to miss a moment. And by the way, I'll hold you in suspense no longer. I made it to the top and did not die. <clears throat> Paul, Paul confronted risk because he was a Christian. Paul confronted risk because the Spirit of God compelled him. That, that verse 22, constrained by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen. This sense of going not knowing should be imprinted in the heart of every believer because Paul understood that in life, under God, there's no going back. We can't stay where we are. The only place to go is to go forward. And here's the point that I want to make. The gospel that we are called to carry and embody, that gospel imposes a similar experience of risk and cost upon each of us. In other words, it makes a similar claim upon us as it did upon Paul. I mean, the Christian life is this mysterious suspense where we are ever and always being constrained by the Spirit, going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. And the more that we understand that, the more that we will come face to face with an undeniable fact, not only for Paul, but for us as well, and that is that for the Christian, the gospel makes an audacious claim. The gospel makes an audacious claim. And I want to unpack that claim. In fact, we're going to divide it into three different parts, beginning with claim number one. Here it is, claim number one. Go forth uncertain. Go forth uncertain. <clears throat> Verse 22 is like a great summary 
of Paul's experience, and I would suggest it's probably a great summary of your experience with God as well, where Paul says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing. In other words, how God often works is God creates a compulsion within us, constrained by the Spirit. He sets us in motion. I'm going to Jerusalem. But he withholds what's going to happen as we obey him in moving in that direction, not knowing what will happen. And that forms a very common way that people experience God's direction. And it's not unusual in Scripture. I mean, for Paul, this started all the way back at his conversion. Acts chapter 8, basically the first words he heard from Jesus was, Rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Almost from the very beginning, God is reorienting him. Rise, enter the city, get in motion, start obeying me, I'll fill in the plans as you start responding to me. And, and this is hard for us because, because we're like, no, Lord, what am I supposed to do? God says, well, well, I just told you, rise and enter the city. No, no, I want to know the, the part after that. What am, I, what am I supposed to do? What is this going to look like? God says, no, you don't need the whole plan. No, no, Lord, I do need the whole plan. You don't understand me. I'm, I'm, I'm a type A. I need to control these things. I need to know. I need to understand. But God starts unwiring Paul and repackaging Paul almost from the very beginning so that Paul was being weaned off of his own wisdom because he was a very exceptionally bright guy and becoming more dependent upon God for his direction. I mean, Acts chapter 13, Paul, God, God speaks, the Spirit speaks and says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. <laughs> oh, great, that's really helpful, Lord. What have you called them to? You know, what are they supposed to be doing? Lord, we need more information. We need more clarity. God says, no, you don't. No, you just need to respond and obey to what you see. Respond and obey to what I say because I'm not giving you the full package. You're not allowed to be God. I'm God, you're not. I get the whole package, you don't. So you need to just be, you just need to be walking in response. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to sprinkle a little bit of mystery in your life and you're going to basically live constrained by the Spirit, going to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen. Now, here's the question we have to resolve together this morning. Why would God do that to Paul? Because there's another question connected to it. And that is, why would God do that to us? And I think there's a thousand reasons. But I just want to talk to you about one of them. And that is... Because our uncertainty serves a vital role in God's plan and a vital role in deepening our relationship with God, our uncertainty becomes a daily reminder installed in our life of our dependence upon God, a daily reminder that He is God and we are not. I mean, just think about the nature of risk, you know, the, the very nature of risk. Risk exists. The existence of risk reminds us of how much different God is than we are, of how much greater God is than we are. Because God doesn't take risks 
nor is he a risk taker. God is neither going, because he's already there, nor is he ever not knowing, because he knows all things. See, the presence of risk in our life reminds us each and every day of our, of our humanity. We're not divine. We are human. We are limited. We have, we have ignorance about the future. I mean, we confront risk because we don't know the future. We don't have control of the future. Only only God controls all things. We try to control all things. We try to control things by getting to know about things. I mean, I, I, I saw this growing up. I, I grew up in Pittsburgh. We raised all of our kids in Philadelphia. I don't know if this area is the same as those areas, but the, but the mere threat of a snowstorm, not an actual snowstorm, I'm talking about the forecast of a snowstorm, will immediately lock the city in to the 24-hour news cycle that's reporting on it, and then immediately send people down to the Kroger where they'll walk the aisles, almost like, uh, like robots, just saying, milk and bread, milk and bread, milk and bread, milk and, we, we need milk and bread. I don't know why I need milk and bread, but I need milk and bread. And, and you know, like there's something about snow cumping that creates this desire for a, a sandwich and a glass of milk. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but there's this sense where if we can, if we can know about it, then we can control it. And we can minimize the risks. Because there's something inside of us that just craves this risk-free existence. And yet what we don't recognize is that risk serves a central purpose in the life of the believer. Each and every day, risk reasserts the reality that was initially uncovered for us in the gospel. And that is, we are not omniscient. We are not independent. We are not strong. We are not in control. We are weak. We are dependent. We are limited. We need a Savior each and every day. We must trust Him to save us, and we must trust Him for the journey that follows. And here's the thing. God delights. You know that situation that's driving you nuts right now? Where you're like moving out and you don't. God delights putting us in that position. That going not knowing. Because it reshapes our soul around trusting him. And it orients us to walk by faith and not by sight. And so God knows this, and he uses it. And it's always been this way. I mean, all the way back in Genesis 12, God thinks nothing of saying to Abram, Abram, yes, Lord, here's the plan. Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go. Well, where do you want me to go? To the land I'll show you. I'll show you. No, you just get in motion, Abram. I just want you in mo I just want you to respond to my word, respond in the direction, and I'll color it in for you. And you know, like you're like I am. We're like, no, 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 Lord. Hey, I wasn't born yesterday, Lord. You show me the land, and then I'll determine whether I want to go. Because I may not like the land. I the land may be toxic. The man Land may be unsafe. The land may have those people in it, Lord. And you know how I feel about those people. 
And God says, no, no, you don't understand. I want you constrained by the Spirit, going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. And I get this. We, we hear this and we say, Dave, th- th- this is crazy. It's absurd. It's irrational. It's audacious. That's my point. That's my point. The gospel makes an audacious claim. It says, go forth uncertain. Claim number two, prepare for difficulty. So verse 23 adds an additional twist to the audacious claim. 22 says, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Verse 23 begins with, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and, imprisonment and afflictions await me. So it's like Paul wasn't completely ignorant. He at least knew this much that imprisonment and afflictions await him. I, I don't know if your mind works like mine, but I'm thinking if I'm Paul, I'm like saying, Lord, I mean, can we have this one of two ways. Can you keep me in complete ignorance or give me the whole plan? But if you're really going to let me in on one small part of it, does it need to be that imprisonment and afflictions await me? So Paul moves forward in his life knowing that there's danger, knowing it's going to be unsafe, knowing that there might be injury up ahead, having a sense for the ending, but just not knowing how it's going to play out. I mean, you know, I think of like, uh, I think about like Star Trek growing up when those, when those no names would beam down to the surface. You know, anyone here a, a Star Trek? F- I mean, this is a safe space, so you can, whether it's, you know, Captain Kirk or, or, or Picard or Cisco or Archer or whoever it is. But they were always the same in, in one sense. They have this transporter room, right? And then there are always these main crew members that are in the episode each week. And then some of the main crew members will go down to the, the transporter room, but there's always that one guy that nobody's ever seen. And so it's the four people that are always there and that one guy, and you're like screaming at him, don't get onto the transporter. Don't you realize you're alien bait? That's the only reason you exist. You're going down. You're not coming back. They go down every week. They always come back. You're going down. You're not coming back. And you're screaming at the television because you have a sense for the ending. You just don't know how it's going to happen. Here's what Paul knew. I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, but I do know one thing. There will be a cost. It will be, well, let's talk about this word. It will be unsafe. You know, it's hard to hear that as as we deal with like the last three years as we think about the fallout of the pandemic, where, where safety is a need that exists now, almost right alongside of food, shelter, and emotional safety. In fact, the role of parenting, and I'm sure you're discerning this, but the role of parenting is com- being completely re-engineered now from 
training our kids to accept risk to helping our kids avoid risk at any cost. We don't want them to be merely physically safe. We want them to be emotionally safe at all times. And by the way, I'm not advocating that we put our kids in situations that they're emotionally unsafe. I'm just saying some parents work overtime to protect their kids from any failure, from any emotionally emotional discomfort, and, and the challenge is they don't prepare them for the reality, not only of the world, but of the church. Because the challenge of Jesus is he crawls right up into our safe space and detonates the whole thing. He just disrupts it. He says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Your enemies, go love them. Wait, I, I don't feel safe around my enemies. Well, that's actually not what I asked you. I'm, thank you for telling me that. That's good to know. I'm going to give you grace in that, but I want you to love. I want you to forgive one another. Well, no, I'm not going to forgive. Do you realize what the, no, forgive, that's what, remember, I died on the cross. I forgave you. That's kind of the way that, that you came across to me, how you were hostile to me. Remember that? Yeah, that, that felt unsafe sometimes to me, but I died for you. See, here's, here's what God's calling us to do is is, you know the person that offended you that you're so tempted to withdraw from and angered you? Yeah, no, I want you to go to them. I want you to engage them. There's, there's nothing that feels safe about this. Christian community means being sinned against, uh, being with unpredictable personalities, having small groups with where one person needs to be loved, and that one person, by the way, may be you. Um, you know, and, and because we always think, yeah, oh, I know who this applies to, and our mind goes somebody else, so, to somebody else, but the reality is there's somebody else in the room that's thinking about us. So that, that sense where G- Jesus wasn't holding out this vision of emotional safety. He's holding out this vision where he's conforming us to his image at times where we're placing ourselves at risk. And this is hard for me because I realize there's just this fundamental human drive that I, that I think we all feel. I, I know I feel it. I just want comfort. I just want to be comfortable. I have this desire to remain hassle-free. You know, I, I want to rule over my life. I want to eliminate risk. I want to obliterate cost. I want to just keep difficulties away because, you know, Discomfort and difficulties are really synonymous. If it doesn't assault our comfort, it's not really a difficulty. What's the big deal if Paul is saying here in in verse 23? I only know that hotels and hot tubs await me. It doesn't land on you in the same way, does it? (laughs) Difficulties by design strip us down and violate our comfort. And in so doing, keep us rooted in what really matters. And if you can hear this right now, I want you to hear God's solution that that, that we just need to come to terms with the reality that God has already fixed in our life, which we may not have seen clearly, but is an unalterable principle, and that is to accept that your life is often just going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. Because nothing attacks the idols of comfort quicker than being led into an uncomfortable risk. And you know what? Some of us are there right now. You feel compelled and constrained by the Spirit. You have sought counsel. You have sought God. And now you just got to move forward. 
Others of us need to be there right now. You're too comfortable. I mean, last time you took a, took a risk, you were listening to sermons on a cassette. You're under-challenged. You're lethally bored. Here, here's the question I want to ask you. What is your Jerusalem? I'm constrained by the Spirit. I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what. What is your Jerusalem this morning? Maybe it's, it's reconciling with someone who you feel unreconciled from, and yet you know you need to take the first step, and that just seems so difficult and risky. Maybe it's having a conversation with your spouse that you have been avoiding for months. Maybe it's walking across the street to, 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 to talk to a neighbor and, and, and just love them or express some kindness to them or, dare I say, even invite them to church on Sunday. See, God is constantly seeking to put us in a position where we are growing in dependence upon him. Let me say that in a different way. God loves us too much to allow us to squander our lives in the gray twilight of ambivalence. He'll come after our ambivalence. He'll disrupt our ambivalence. And he does it through the audacious claim of the gospel. Go forth uncertain. Prepare for difficulty. And then finally, claim number three, value the gospel above all. Down to verse 24, Paul says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So it's almost like Paul slaps on an accountant's hat and, and begins to assign value. And honestly, here's where we see like the true audacity of the claim. Because Paul's saying, hey, I value the gospel above my life. Above my life. And, and, and we can read this and think, can he really be saying what it appears like he's saying? That, that fulfilling the gospel is more valuable than even his life? And, and yes, he is saying that. And I love the fact that it's the apostle Paul that is saying it. In other words, well, here's one guy who you would think would have a justifiable exemption from being offered up for the gospel. Like, we, need, we just need this guy too much. We need his leadership. We need the kind of thinking he brings. We need his missional instincts. We need him to be able to move forward. But Paul doesn't protect himself because he seems too valuable. He says, no, I, I value the gospel above my life. Secondly, under valuing the gospel above all, he, he values the gospel even above his relationships. And, and keep in mind, this is a guy who loved people. In fact, inherent to Paul's definition of success was relationships. I mean, in this passage alone, verse 17, he immediately arrives at Miletus. He calls for his friends up in Ephesus. He talks about, I, I, verse 18, I lived with you. I related to you. Verse 19, I served you with tears. 
Verse 34, we, we, we supported one another. We, they're kneeling on the beach weeping because they're parting from one, each other at the end of this passage. And you talk about risk. Actually, we didn't even read this section, but in verse 29 and 30, Paul says, oh, yeah, and, and by the way, oh, gosh, I wish I'd have mentioned this. Um, after I leave, savage wolves are going to come in, from, and, and they're going to rise up from inside of you. Actually, they're going to come from the outside as well. It's going to be messy. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be really challenging. Peace out. Paul knew leaving would be hard. Paul knew people would be at risk. But he left because he valued the relationships. He loved people, but there was a prior claim upon his life where he valued the gospel above all. And, 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 and just so you know, I, I've not been asked to prepare you for another big announcement. Yes, we transitioned, Doug, and now Nate is transitioning as well. Get used to it. No, it's, it's nothing like that. This is, this is more like we're just looking at what's happening in Paul's life and what's coming out of this text here. And you know why? Because sometimes we assume that the best way to honor God is just to go into this protection mode as a church. You know, we, we, we protect our, our money. We protect our people from all risk. We protect, you know, everything that, that we, we need that is entrusted to our care. I brought this quote with me, one of my favorite quotes by John Piper. John Piper once said, no local church can afford to go without the encouragement and nourishment that will come to it by sending away its best people. You do not expect that quote to end that way. The encouragement and nourishment that come by sending away its best people. And, and, and you get this. I mean, you've just appointed a new lead pastor, and if you're like most churches, you know, it becomes a time of consolidating. We need to, we need to settle in. But, but here, here's what I want to encourage you, Radiant. Here's how I want to encourage you. Don't disregard the, quote, encouragement and nourishment that comes to you only by sending out good people, only at times by sending out your best people. Radiant, plant churches. Plant churches. And here's why I say this. Because we tend to think of church planting as something that's only about loss. But the multiplication that a church does actually becomes a mega vitamin that invests back into the church and does it in a way that nothing else accomplishes it. See, mission keeps a dynamic of sacrifice in the church which builds a life and vitality into the church which is accomplished by nothing else which is why John Piper says we need the encouragement and nourishment that comes from sending people away because we need that in the local church. I remember one season where I was leading our, our church. It was such a difficult season. Oh, it was torturous, and there was turbulence, and there was disunity, and about 10 to 15% of the church had left, and I'm looking around I'm thinking, you know what? Things are just so bad. We better plant a church. 
We need to plant a church. We need the encouragement and nourishment that will come to us from planting a church and, and, and receiving from God the blessing and benefit that comes from that. And so Paul saw that. And so he was able to value relationships, but also to recognize that for the mission to move forward, we sow out good people, and then we receive this encouragement and nourishment back from God. And then finally, value the gospel. Now, this one I want you to think about with me. Value the gospel above the fruit of the gospel. And I realize that's a strange one because we all long for fruit. You know, when you think about like what you're doing in your life, parenting, leadership, relationships, we're, we're all in it for the fruit. But Paul did not hold God hostage for certain fruit in certain seasons based upon the way he was living or leading. God, Paul did not hold God hostage that God had to deliver. Like there was some kind of transactional relationship where if Paul did this, this, and this, then God had to deliver this fruit in this season in order to validate not only his love, but that Paul's doing the right thing. No. When Paul defines success, he says in, he says in verse 25, I, I, I simply was, quote, I simply want to be faithful to testify to the gospel and grace of Jesus Christ. Paul recognized that there are some goals there are some things that are so worthy, mere obedience is enough. Some goals are so worthy, it's glorious just to be a part of them. Some goals are so worthy, we don't know when the fruit is going to come, and so we sow. Paul did not need discernible fruit in every season in order to feel good about himself, in order to feel good about his, his family, or in order to feel good about his ministry. He just wanted to be, again, using his words, faithful to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You know, a few years ago, we, the, the church that I was leading, planted a church in an area called Chester, Pennsylvania. Planted by a, a heroic couple, a heroic family. And this is a, this is an impoverished city that is south of Philadelphia, uh, urban in context, um, many, many risks attached to planting. And as time passed and one year rolled into the next year rolled into the next year, the man leading it became persuaded and those of us that were helping him became persuaded that the Lord was not bringing the life and vitality to the church and that the church needed to be drawn to a close. Now, these are the stories that, that networks, collectives, need to talk about more. Because, you know, we're so accustomed to trying to try to define success in a certain way that we can completely overlook the heroism that takes place in stories like this and the fruit in eternity, and even in this life that can come about from a story like this. But this was difficult. Because there were many hopes, there was money, there were, there were people that went out on the team that made great sacrifices. The, the family made great sacrifices to go to this place. And on, on the final Sunday of their existence, they had their church service, and then they had a banquet afterwards. 
And they just reviewed and testified and celebrated God's goodness. And as that banquet came to a close, and that history of that church drew to an end, there was one brother sitting off on a, on a table, and he was just experiencing the moment, and, and, and he kind of captured it by beginning to sing. He sang this song, Haven't You Been Good? Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord, for drawing me out of millions lost. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Haven't you been good? And his voice was echoing off the banquet walls, and and this holy hush kind of settled upon the group. And then one by one from different corners, the children got up and began to dance around. And the Spirit of God stirred among them. And the people, every single one of the people that were there, they began to sing. They began to earnestly join their voices, truly believing the substance of the song that they were singing, that even though the fruit did not work out in the way they expected, God had been good. And as the lead pastor was sitting there just observing the thing, he was, he was thinking to himself, you know, some goals are so worthy, it's glorious to even make the attempt that the gospel is so worthy, it's glorious to even make the attempt. And so, Radiant, you are called to reach this community, you are called to build this local church, you are called to plant churches, you are called to risk the invitations to other people. You're called to approach the next 10 years, not with the demand that everything you do is going to bear immediate fruit, but with the sense that it is glorious to even make the attempt. And I wish I could sit, stand here and say to you that the day of cost and risk are over, but you know what? I think it's just beginning. And so, constrained by the Spirit, we are going to Jerusalem, not knowing what awaits us. Let's pray. Lord, even as we move into the future, not knowing, we know that you are in that future and that you know that future and that you go before us and that you will meet us and speak to us and give us what we need. Lord, we pray that you would help us to glorify you and take steps in response to this audacious claim of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.